Well, this morning I'm going to piggyback a little bit off of uh, a series that Mike did recently where he's talked about gender roles. He's been mostly concerned with uh, proper gender roles in leadership in the home and in the church. I want to talk a little bit about the dysfunction in greater society today, the gender confusion that we have. All the, all the people who believe there's an infinite number of genders and that gender is fluid and all of those things. I want to talk about that and sort of help set it in context from Scripture. Why is it that the world is so confused about gender these days? Issues that, frankly, our great-grandparents would be amazed that we're confused by it. When you look at the recent pictures of that guy, and he is a guy, who is, uh, you know, he's in the Navy, and they've made him an admiral, and they say he's the first, I forget what his actual role is, they say he's the first female admiral, but he's not a female. Uh, And you look at those pictures and think, people in earlier generations would have seen that and said, has the whole world gone crazy? And the answer is yes. Yes, it has. And Uh, My contention is that today's confusion regarding genders and gender roles stems ultimately from our culture's rejection of God and the corresponding rejection of the truth that we as humans bear the image of God. And so I want to talk a little bit about the image of God and what the abandonment of that truth has done to our culture. I was born in 1953. That was less than a decade after World War II ended. That doesn't make me sound old, does it? I'm 70. I can't believe that myself. But the 50s, which I remember pretty well, was a time of unprecedented prosperity in America. Our culture, both socially and economically, had undergone a dramatic shift from pre-war depression, and the post-war era ushered in a population explosion like the world had never seen before. The boom in births was enormous, and that's why they call my generation baby boomers. From 1944 until 1961, more than 65 million children were born in the United States. That's a baby every seven seconds on average. During most of my childhood, the values reflected even in American entertainment, were dramatically different than they are today. You know, the quintessential American family was portrayed on television by, I don't know, Leave it to Beaver or Father Knows Best. Father Knows Best. That's not even politically correct to say today. It was a title of a sitcom when I was a kid. Or if you want an example even of a single-parent family, there was Andy Griffith. And I want you to notice... Because you see reruns of those, even though, even though some of you, most of you aren't as old as I am. If you notice the common thread in all of those, the fathers were strong males, and they were basically chaste and moral examples. The Cleaver family even went to church. You know, we found out years later that Ozzie and Harriet Nelson were, were rabid atheists. But when they were on TV in the 50s and 60s, they had to keep that a a careful secret. Nobody knew it because any father who was an atheist in that era was considered dysfunctional by mainstream America. And so much has changed since then. Today, Bill Fickett is the one that pointed this out to me. I don't watch The Simpsons. I think he does. (laughs) I don't condemn him for that. No judgment here. But he pointed out to me 
that the Simpsons are the only family on television today who regularly go to church. And the point there, of course, is to mock religion. Homer Simpson is a bumbling idiot. He is the absolute weakest member of his family. And strong males, heads of families, are virtually unknown in today's dramas and situation comedies. And in fact, if you ever see on TV or in the movies a man who is head of his household, he's probably there as a symbol of evil or oppression because strong male leadership is viewed as an evil these days. And that, of course, is one of the reasons there's so much confusion about what gender is and what it should be. And so in my short lifetime, and it does feel short, even though it's 70 years, in that time, our culture has changed dramatically. Rebellion is glorified, and authority is deemed oppressive, and good is called evil and vice versa. Traditional moral values are held by the general culture in contempt. Scripture is openly despised. God's name is regularly blasphemed in ways that people find perversely entertaining. And in the words of Romans 1.32, although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And no movement has done more to bring this about, the, this rent reordering of our culture. Nobody has done more no movement has done more than radical feminism. You cannot have missed the fact that the most heavily promoted changes in our culture all have to do with sexual mores and gender roles and the idea that there is something toxic about masculinity. And so as immorality becomes mainstream and biblical standards fall by the wayside, the culture itself has become more and more hostile to Scripture. And obviously, in order to define, redefine gender roles and make promiscuity the cultural norm, you have to reject the order that God built into the family and human society and the church. And what's most frightening about all of this is that at the moment, the speed with which these new anti-biblical, anti-Christian values have begun to permeate and take hold in our culture Combined with the ludicrous extremes people are now willing to go, the speed is remarkable, mind-boggling. When Barack Obama ran for president in 2008, he had to pretend to be opposed to gay marriage, or he wouldn't have been electable. And now, barely a decade later, some similarly high people, people are regularly lose their jobs, or they are forced to pay a very high price merely for privately expressing that they disapprove of gay marriage. You're not supposed to say that out loud anymore, just in the matter of less than two decades. Governments are beginning to mandate that if anyone wants to self-identify as a woman, everybody is required by law to call him, her, her, call him, her, or them, or, you know, by whatever the genderqueer person's preferred pronouns are. You, you, you must not only recognize but affirm gender fluidity or you'll be a social outcast. And in all likelihood, it will soon be criminal to take a biblical position on those issues. We talked about that maybe within the past year, I think, when Canada passed a law basically making it illegal 
to tell people who are gay that that's a, that's a perversion of, of how, how things work. You read about these things in the daily news, so I'm, I'm not going to rehearse all the bizarre effects of these trends, but you see it everywhere. Men are now dominating women's sporting events, so mediocre male athletes who have discovered that they can win if they simply self-identify as girls, and they've done it. And you have parents manipulating very young children and giving them hormones and in order to confuse their biological gender. And all of this is abominable to normal human reason. And really, less than two generations ago, almost everyone would have agreed because nature itself is sufficient to teach us, even to teach unbelievers, that gender fluidity is destructive both to society and to the sanity and morality of the individual who lives in rebellion to the divine order. People who live under that kind of ideology do not have happy lives. That's why the suicide rate is so high. It's one of the major reasons. And all of this is an attempt by the forces of evil to debase and discredit the image of God in humanity. That's what it boils down to. Secular culture now overwhelmingly rejects God, the God of Scripture, and in order to justify that kind of atheism, the culture also has to deny and degrade and ultimately try to destroy the image of God that is inherent in the human soul. God created us that way. That's what all this gender gerrymandering is all about. And so I want this morning to talk about the image of God in the human soul, and let's look together at what Scripture says about this. Genesis 2-7, we'll start there, because it's where the, the story of this starts. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, Yahweh God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and so the man became a living being. Now, that is a unique event in the creation narrative. The, the creation of man, of course, was the last stage in all of creation. Up to that point, every other creature God had made, he had simply done it by calling them into existence by his word. Genesis 1.24, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, and it was so. But this final species is special. And it's supposed to stand out to us that way. In this case, God didn't just say, let there be man, and he was. God formed Adam out of dust, literally taking the most common and contemptible ingredient on dry land, dirt from the earth, and fashioning it into a living creature. And then, in a gesture suitable to the honor God intended to bestow on this creature, the Almighty himself breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And thus, man was specially fashioned by the hand of God as the very pinnacle and crown of all creation, and man was given dominion over all the rest of creation. We're not just one of the animals. All the universe was made to be at the disposal of the man who was to rule over and manage the rest of creation. In other words, Adam was made specifically to serve as a representative of God on earth. And to that end, he was created in the image and the likeness of God. Now, only a scant handful of texts in all of Scripture 
refer to the fact that we are made in the image of God, depending on how you count, and allowing for differences of interpretation. There are just seven to ten passages in Scripture that say man is made in the image of God, and yet this truth is the essential foundation for a biblical understanding of the human race. You can't understand humanity at all unless you understand we were created by God in his own image. It's a truth that permeates and informs everything else the Bible has to say about humanity. And it singles out and highlights what distinguishes us as humans from the rest of God's creatures. And it helps us understand why it is that God purposed to redeem a believing remnant of the human race in the first place. I mean, we've talked about this before. I keep pointing out to you that none of the angels who fell were ever redeemed. And yet, when all of humanity fell, God stepped in to guarantee the preservation of this race, our human race. Why? What makes humanity so important? And the answer to that question starts here in Genesis 1.27. God created man in in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now, the truth that man was originally made in God's image actually sheds light on the question of why God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Furthermore, this truth that we are made in God's image perfectly mirrors and helps explain the incarnation of Christ. This this is a truth that's woven through every important doctrine of Scripture. At creation, man was made in God's image. In the incarnation, Christ was made in the likeness of men. Those are the exact words of Philippians 2.7. Christ was made in the likeness of men, or in the words of Romans 8.3, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. So the truth that we are made in God's image underscores, first of all, our duty to God and the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It's a point of doctrine that has profound implications for the doctrine of original sin, and it also points forward to our ultimate triumph in glory. And in fact, I would say this concept of God's image in humanity is the very heart of Christian anthropology the study of man and mankind from a biblical point of view. It is an absolutely vital theological concept, and its significance is found not only in the story of creation and the fall of humanity, but also in every phase of our salvation, from our election in eternity past to our glorification in eternity future. How essential is this doctrine? As Calvin said, the clear implication of it is We cannot truly know ourselves until we contemplate God. How can you understand a creature who was made in the image of God if you don't understand anything about God? If you don't know God, you can't truly understand humanity because man is a creature made in God's likeness, right? So this is a rich and important truth, but as vital as this doctrine is, as I mentioned It's directly referred to only in a handful of biblical texts, and Scripture is almost completely silent when it comes to explaining in any kind of detail 
what does this mean? What does it mean we're made in the image of God? What's, what is that image? What does it look like? What's it talking about? What precisely are we saying when we affirm that man is made in the image of God? What exactly constitutes the image of God in man? And theologians have speculated about those questions and debated about various answers to the, the central question, what is the image of God in man? They've debated that since the time of the church fathers. And so I want to consider those questions this morning, but I want to do it in an orderly and logical way. So let's look at this doctrine in three stages. First, we're going to consider the image of God in the garden before the fall of humanity, then the image of God after the fall, and finally, the image of God in Christ. So in other words, we're going to survey the whole sweep of redemptive history and keep in focus the foundational truth that the human race was created for this purpose to bear the image and likeness of God. So look at me with the starting point. We'll talk about the image of God in the garden. And we start here in Genesis 1, near the end of the chapter. And again, this is the crowning point of all creation. Then God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, notice verse 26 uses two nouns, image and likeness, and those are parallel terms. They're close synonyms. It's not giving us two distinct things. This is kind of repetition of different words that mean the same thing. That's common in Hebrew parallelism. It's a literary device. It's a poetic construction, actually, that in, is inserted here for emphasis in our image, after our likeness. And then notice the very next verse, the opening phrase is repeated twice, but this time the order of the words is reversed. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. So it's a deliberately poetic expression. And notice also Genesis 5.3 uses the same two nouns as Genesis 1.26, but Genesis 5.3 puts them in reverse order. In Genesis 1.26, it's in our image according to our likeness. Genesis 5.3 says, says about Adam, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image. So those two words and their Hebrew equivalents are used interchangeably throughout Scripture. So this is clearly parallelism. It's not a contrast. Image and likeness mean the same thing. So what does it mean? Is the image of God in man one of the higher human faculties like the intellect or the will or, or perhaps a combination of distinctive human characteristics? One popular view is that reason is the very essence of the image of God in man, that our ability to use logic and think things out, that's what makes us human. Others have said, no, it's human volition, the will, free will, according to some, you know, as if, as if the Almighty was actually handing over some measure of his sovereignty to the creature. Some, there are people who believe that and teach that. Another popular opinion is, no, the image of God in man is our moral self-awareness, the fact that we can know the difference 
between right and wrong on a spiritual level. We, we can have a conscience that accuses us or excuses us. We feel guilt. There may have been other suggestions made by theologians over the course of church history. Some, for example, say it's, it's simply the fact that we are spiritual creatures. That makes us in the image of God with immortal souls and moral sensibilities. Others say, no, it's human creativity. That's the most godlike attribute in the soul of humanity. And still others then point to, in, in the actual context of this verse, it talks about the dominion that God gave Adam over all the other creatures. And they say, that's what makes him most like God. He rules over the rest of creation. And Lutheran theologians will often point to Ephesians 4, verses 23 and 24, which tells us, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And therefore, they conclude, the image of God consists of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And all of those ideas have been proposed. All of them have been debated to death. One especially popular view in recent years is that man's ability to have relationships, that's what's at the heart of what it means to be made in the image of God. In fact, Karl Barth, the famous you know, neo-Orthodox theologian, helped to popularize that opinion. He rejected out of hand the idea that man's intellectual faculties, his reason or logic or understanding, he said those don't have anything to do with the image of God, and he pointed to Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And Bart said the image of God must consist in the juxtaposition and conjunction of the human creature in both male and female. And that relationship, he said, is what Scripture signifies when it mentions the Im- image of God in man. And so Bart, who was an existentialist, had to get reason and understanding out of the equation because he wasn't into that. So he located the image of God in the dual gender makeup of the human race, that they're, they're, the humanity consists of both men and women. And when he proposed that theory, Bart famously asked, could anything be more obvious? And my answer is, well, yes. The, the problems with Bart's theory seem pretty obvious to me. First of all, practically the whole animal kingdom consists of species that come in two genders. So it's pretty hard to see how that faculty, that, that feature would elevate humanity above the birds and animals and creeping things. And, and second, since there are no di- gender distinctions in God, it seems kind of far-fetched to suggest that humanity's dual gender makeup is what constitutes the image and the likeness of God. And third, those who follow Bart and take all of man's rational faculties out of the picture, they're left with something that seems to me less like God and not more so. But here's what I want you to notice. Nowhere in any of the biblical statements does it say that we as humans have the image of God. The divine image, my argument would be, it's not some faculty that God has given us. It's not any combination of human attributes. It's not something that resides in us. It's not merely part of our character or constitution. But the whole point of Genesis 1.26 is to suggest not that God placed the image of himself inside the human constitution, 
Scripture doesn't say God created his image in man. It says he created man in his own image. And the point is not that he gave humanity some singular quality that was godlike, but rather that he made man in order to be and to function as a living image of himself. Man doesn't have the image of God. He is a living image of God. And the Apostle Paul more or less settles the question, as far as I'm concerned, in 1 Corinthians 11, where in the midst of that kind of cryptic discussion about head coverings on men and women, Paul says something that is remarkably clear. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, a man not a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. Now, ignore for a minute, because I don't want to get into that argument, the issue of head coverings and the distinction that that verse makes between men as males and women as females, but just pay close attention to the language Paul uses. A man is the image and glory of God which is clear, right? The point Paul is making is not that we have an image or certain communicable attributes of God built into our souls, but rather that as creatures we are living images of God. Man was made to be a kind of replica or facsimile of his creator, a representative and a a representation of God on earth. So in Paul's word, a man is the image and the glory of God. Now, I do need to say in connection with this passage that even though Paul goes on in that same verse, 1 Corinthians 11, 7, to say, but the woman is the glory of man, we're not to think that Paul is saying that men as males are the image of God and that women are merely a reflection of man's glory. That's not his point. Genesis 1, 27 decisively eliminates that possibility where it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Puts them on the same level in terms of their bearing the image of God. And Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2 says it again. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. So that that species name, man, even though feminists don't like it, It applies to both genders. We're both men. Men and women are men in the species sense, humanity, and we're all made in the image of God. Both belong to that same species, man, but they're nevertheless different from one another because we are made for different roles. But anyway, there in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is simply outlining the order of creation. So listen to the text again, 1 Corinthians 11 Verses 7 and 8, the woman is the glory of man, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. So Adam embodied the image and the glory of God, and then Eve, who's made from Adam's rib, reflected not only God's glory, but yes, she bears the image of God as well, but also Adam's glory too. Because according to Genesis 1:27. Both of them are made in the image of God. They and every member of the human race were designed to be living models of God's righteousness and his holiness and his authority and all of that. We were supposed to serve as mirrors and representatives of God's glory here on earth. We had the capacity to honor God, 
to share his holiness, to reflect his glory, to embody all the communicable attributes of God, to have fellowship with him, all of those things, until Adam sinned it away. So all of those qualities that we've been talking about, in other words, pretty much everybody who's speculated on what this means has something in what they say that's true. All of those qualities that we're talking about, the intellect, the volition, creativity, man's love of beauty, our moral awareness, our relational nature, our dominion over the rest of creation, and everything else that is distinctive to humanity, those things don't embody the image of God per se, but they are indeed crucial features of our humanness that make us like God. That's the result. They are the fruits of the fact that we are made in God's image. We should think of those things as functional expressions of the fact that every human being is a living image of God, or created to be that. Remember, God made us to reflect and to relish his glory, as the catechism says. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We glorify him by, taking, by being partakers in his glory, and heralds of his righteousness, and imitators of his holiness, and more on that later. But now, let me point out a number of thought-provoking questions regarding this doctrine. Have you ever considered this truth in light of how Satan tempted Eve? They were made by God himself in his own image. They were made in the likeness of God by the very hand of God so that they were like God in every sense that it's possible for a mere creature to be like God. That's how God made them. That's what he made them for. And yet, when the serpent serpent tempted Eve, here's what he said to her, Genesis 3, 5. God knows that in the day you eat from the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And his insinuation, of course, was that God didn't want Adam and Eve to be like him. That was a total lie. And, of course, as Jesus said of Satan in John 8, 44, there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Because the truth is, God had made Adam and Eve in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. They were, that's Genesis 1, 27 again. They were as much like God as it's possible for them to be. And yet, as we often see when the devil speaks in Scripture, His lies are typically half-truths. Scripture says there is no truth in him, meaning there's no pure truth in him, but he'll sometimes quote Scripture and then twist the meaning of it. And he did that here. He told Eve, you shall not die. You surely will not die. And there was a very narrow sense in which that's kind of true. Eating the forbidden fruit didn't immediately prove physically fatal to Eve or Adam. They, they did die spiritually that very day, and the process of physical deterioration that would lead to their physical deaths also began immediately that day. But the devil speaks half-truths and double entendres, and the result is still a lie, is a liar and the father of lies. So here's the half-truth. When they ate the fruit, Scripture says, Genesis 3-7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. In other words, they lost their innocence. They gained a firsthand practical and experiential 
knowledge of evil that they never would have known otherwise. And it was the one thing that they needed to stay in the dark about, but now their innocence was shattered. And look at Genesis 3.22. Then Yahweh said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So Adam, who's a living icon of God, or created to be that, was expelled from the garden. And this, by the way, was an act of mercy, really, lest Adam now eat from the tree of life and gain immortality in this fallen, corrupt condition. Adam was fallen in every sense, spiritual sense it's possible to be, and it would soon be apparent uh, through the sinful actions even of his firstborn son, it would be apparent that the fall spelled sin and disaster not only for Adam and Eve, but for all of their offspring as well. The whole human race was plunged into sin. This is the doctrine of original sin. None of us is born guiltless. None of us is born truly innocent in the sense that Adam and Eve were before they fell. So the, the obvious question that we have to answer from that is then, what did this mean for humanity as the living image of God? Was the image of God destroyed or lost? Or since the image was not merely a part of man's soul or his, his personal constitution or, or something in man, but it, the image was man himself, what did the fall mean for the living image of God? And so now we consider the image of God after the fall. And things change. Look again at Genesis 3:22. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Now, at first glance, that's shocking. In fact, there's only one way that this makes good sense. What does this mean? Well, it's divine sarcasm. It has to be. The Lord is not stating a fact here. He is derisively echoing the false promise that Satan had made to tempt Eve with. God is mocking Satan's lie when he says this. Matthew Henry paraphrases the text like this. The man has become as one of us to know good and evil. A goodly God he makes now, does he not? See what he has got, what preferments, what advantages by eating the forbidden fruit. So it's sarcasm. He didn't become more like God, became less like him. In fact, here's John Gill's comment on it. Behold the man, see how much like a God he looks with his coat of skin on his back, filled with shame and confusion for his folly and dejected under a sense of what he's lost. The fact is, Adam was not now more like God than before. He was fallen rather than elevated by this act of sin. Now, it may be true that, it is true, that through his disobedience, Adam gained a personal knowledge of evil from experience. He certainly lost his innocence, but there's nothing godlike about that. What Adam did by this act was vandalize the image of God. He emerged from the fall ruined and defiled and defaced. God's image, the human being, the whole human race, was permanently marred by this. 
and man became a walking blasphemy and an offense to God. And this, by the way, is one of the key reasons sin is so exceedingly sinful. When you sin, you take that which was made to be a living picture and a representative of God on earth, and you use God's own image in an act of rebellion against him. But notice carefully, the image of God is defaced, but it's not obliterated by man's sin. And Scripture is very clear about this. Human beings, all of us, are still made in the image of God. This is a central argument that James uses when he tells us we need to control our tongues and how we speak to one another, James 3, verses 8 through 10. But no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come cursing and blessing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So he was made in the likeness of God. Now that's definitive, and that can only refer to fallen people, Adam's offspring, and James expressly says they are made in the likeness of God. In other words, to curse a fellow human is a form of blasphemy because that person was created in order to be a living representative of God. And that's true no matter how evil or degenerate the recipient of, of your curse might be. In fact, have you ever noticed in, when God curses the world, the earth, the creation after Adam's fall, Genesis 3, the curse is not directed at Adam. God cursed the serpent. He cursed the ground. And starting with Adam and the whole human race, has borne the consequences of that curse, but God did not curse humanity. Twice in Genesis 3, he formally pronounces a curse, and the first time he curses the serpent, verse 14, and Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than any beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And then three verses later, although he is speaking to Adam... He levels the curse against the earth. Verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. So has that ever stood out to you? God does not directly curse humanity because to do so would be to curse collectively the race of creatures that he made in his own image which explains, I think at least in part, why God is so determined to redeem a remnant of humanity. He thereby preserves for all of eternity a great cloud of witnesses who will reflect and magnify his glory and be spiritually united with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect union forever. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, it will be a great multitude whom no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? It's a brilliant plan. And if you're a believer, you'll be there in the end, and you will be overwhelmed with wonder and gratitude because throughout all eternity, those of us who have placed our trust in Christ as Savior and honored him as Lord will reflect God's glory more fully and more perfectly and more clearly than Adam ever could have, even if he had not fallen into sin in the the garden. 
So how is that possible? How can God take marred and damaged flesh and blood effigies of himself and make us eternally glorious? How does he do that? And the answer is that Christ has done for his people what Adam failed to do, and in fact, Christ raised the redeemed race to a much higher level than the human race ever could have attained in Adam, even if Adam had remained completely faithful. And here you begin to see the wisdom of God's redemptive plan. But in order to grasp it more fully, I have to move on to our third point. We've talked about the image of God in the garden, the image of God after the fall. Now consider the image of God in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 actually makes this contrast between the first man, Adam, and what Paul calls the last Adam. And of course, that's a reference to Christ, the last Adam. Romans 5, verses 12 through 21 is an extended commentary on that idea, showing the parallelism and the contrast between Adam and Christ. They're parallel characters. But let's home in on this idea of the image of God and consider its application to Christ in his role as the new Adam. And so turn with me now to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. I have you turning around a whole lot today. And I hear the pages turning. Good for you. It's like a a wanna thing, you know. Everybody's rushing to get to the verse. I'm just going to read verses 13 through 22, Colossians 1. Paul is giving a short summary of gospel truth. And I want you to notice the prominence he gives to this idea of man as the image of God. Only this time it's not a mere creature. It's not innocent Adam before the fall. It's not fallen men where the image of God is defaced. He's going to introduce us to the quintessential image of the invisible God. And it's Christ in all his glorious perfection without Adam's susceptibility to temptation and sin, without the corruption that has marred and defaced every descendant of Adam. And indeed, listen to how this passage exalts Christ because it's expressly making the point that he is the perfect image of God. He is God. Whereas Adam was only a kind of facsimile, here's the passage, Colossians 1, verses 13 through 22. God rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this, by the way, answers the problem of human fallenness. God in Christ has taken us out of Adam's domain and placed us into Christ's kingdom where we are cleansed and forgiven. And now hear what it says about Christ, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, let me pause there and point out, Adam, of course, was the firstborn of the human race. And that is not a statement about where he falls in the chronology, even though Adam was the first man created. What it's speaking about when it uses the word firstborn is the privilege and influence that comes with being the firstborn, the head of his generation in whatever clan, to say that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't mean that he was a created being, of course. Scripture is very clear. He was in the beginning with God, and by him all things were made. He's not a created being. He's the creator of all things, but he stands, therefore, at the head of of all creation. He is the rightful Lord of the whole universe. He is far above Adam in stature. 
He's the creator, not a created being himself, and the the apostle makes that clear in the very next verse, verse 16, still talking about Christ, for in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So he's the head of all creation because he's the creator. He's the firstborn of the resurrected from the dead because he is the one who leads sinful men out of their their sinful state and out out of their death and into life. For in him, verse 19... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, you could never say that about Adam. Although Adam was created in the image of God, none of these superior attributes of Christ, none of them belong to Adam. And it's absolutely clear that Adam was not indwelt by all the fullness of God. But now Paul describes Christ's mission and God's plan for Christ as the new Adam. Verse 20, and through him... To reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, That is an emphatic promise that whatever sin and guilt have defaced us as living images of God, it's going to be completely wiped away. And Christ will present us to God as holy and blameless. And I don't know about you, but that makes me exceedingly glad. And in the meantime, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. And he does that, Scripture says, by conforming us to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among among many brothers. That's Romans 8, 29. In other words, God is polishing his defaced image, and when he is done, we will share Christ's glory. Amazing thought. 1 John 3, verse 2. We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And again and again, Scripture tells us that God is conforming us to the image of Christ, and Christ is the absolute perfect image of God. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14. We should always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the firstfruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we will, in some real and ineffable sense, we will share his glory. He saved us so that we could obtain the glory of Christ. I don't even know how to explain what that means, but the thought itself is glorious. He's making us into even better likenesses of God than Adam ever was, and Christ has elevated us far above the innocent stature that Adam enjoyed for that brief time before the fall. 
He's making us like our Lord. He's making us like Christ. And when he's finished, we will shine more brightly as God's image than Adam ever could have on his own. And in fact, Scripture even describes the process of sanctification in terms of putting off the old, defaced, defiled self and putting on this superior likeness of God. Ephesians 4, through 24, lay aside in reference to your former conduct the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, I want to be clear here because I don't want you to start thinking like Mormons. To be conformed to the image of Christ, to be conformed to the image of the man Christ Jesus, using biblical expression, it's not the same thing as being deified. We're not becoming gods. We will mirror our Lord's perfect righteousness as a man, how he was as a man. That's what we will mirror as men and women. Truth will be perfectly clear to us so that we won't any longer be susceptible to deception or error. And I gather that our knowledge will be greatly expanded because 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So our brains even will be expanded so that they work. I'm looking forward to that. But that doesn't mean that we're going to achieve omniscience or any of the other incommunicable attributes of God. What it means is that we will be perfect and glorified as much as any creature can be. And one other thing, even though this truth is glorious, that we were made to be reproductions of God and his character, there's a flip side to this truth that ought to keep us humble. You see, Although we are made in the image of God, we are expressly forbidden to think that God is just like us. Scripture teases us with a a bit of a paradox here. We are made like God, and yet at our very best, we're not like him at all. And it's a dangerous thing to form ideas about God that are based on our own traits and preferences. God himself makes this point in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And Psalm 50, verse 21, God is speaking here, and he says, You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. And Isaiah 40, verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? And all of that is to stress the fact that if you think God is like you, you're wrong. You were made to be like him, but that doesn't mean he's like you. We're analogous to God. He is not analogous to us. In other words, Scripture says that man was created in God's image, and that's true. But Scripture never likens God to men. And the scriptures are full of this truth. Isaiah 40, verse 25, To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Isaiah 46, 5, To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? And the obvious answer that the Lord is seeking there is no one. 
There is no one like God. Isaiah 46, verse 9, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. And Exodus 8, verse 10, there is no one like Yahweh our God. Exodus 9, 14, God speaking, there is no one like me in all the earth. 1 Samuel 2, 2, there was no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there was no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. And I could keep quoting verses. You have to understand what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ in the context where that truth is given to us. And it certainly does not mean that uh, we are going to be gods, but it does mean that we will be raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Of course, there's a sense in which Scripture says that's already true, but when it comes to full fruition, and we are conformed to the glory, glorious likeness of the man Christ Jesus, I know you're going to be overwhelmed with the spectacle of that glory. This is a profound truth, and it's one that should actually shape all of our desires and expectations. The Apostle Paul said this was the heart and focus of his entire worldview. He knew he was far from perfect in this life, and you can read his lament about that in Romans 7, but rather than living a life of regret over his imperfections, he kept his heart and expectations looking forward. Philippians 3 Verses 12 through 14, not that I have already obtained it or already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is that he longs for that day when he will see Christ and be made like him, be perfected and glorified and purified in every way that human creatures can possibly be perfected. It's also what he was talking about in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, where he writes this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, you'll be manifested with him in glory. It's the in glory part of that that makes it such an amazing promise, and the thing we should long for is something certainly better to look forward to than next Saturday's football games or, you know, the next vacation or whatever. We should ponder this more than we do. And, and that is the perspective that God wants his people to have, that he will ultimately ch- achieve his purpose and make us glorious representatives of Christ. And I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is a profound and glorious truth. And on the one hand, it convicts us because we are such poor representatives of your holiness and your glory. On the other hand, it points us to our only ultimate hope. And we long to see that glory. May that desire drive everything that we say and think and do 
Lord, sanctify us, mold us more fully into the perfect likeness of your beloved Son. Press us into the mold of gospel truth so that Christ's image is indelibly stamped on us. We pray in his name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.